in my process of, again, just tackling the Bible on its face, I usually take a book, and I start it at the beginning, and I go however far through we get through that particular week, and then uh, pick right where we left off the next week with a little bit of uh, recap from where we were the previous week. Now, one thing you need to understand about this particular style is that if you are visiting faith because you're looking for a new church, um, and really this goes for any church, you need to give a church more than a week's crack at it. And, uh, you know, let's face it, some weeks, um, maybe many weeks, in your opinion, um, I'm a bit off just on numerous things. Sometimes uh, I confuse myself when I'm up here, which is never a good thing. And, uh, you know, so you need to give yourself uh, several weeks. But the main thing with, again, the, with the way I uh, exposit God's word is that uh, what I said last week is going to be the prelude and the introduction, in a sense, for this week. And what I say this week um, may or may not be the introduction for next week. And in our case, there's a brand new uh, pericope, a word that I just enjoy. And for, again, you... Uh, Newcomers to faith, pericope just means a particular grouping of uh, texts that are together. Um, it looks like pericope, but it's periscope without the S. And I knew you wanted to know that. Anyway, I throw it out there kind of tongue-in-cheek now by this time, with all my years at faith. And uh, somebody just asked between the services. They wish I would define it sometime, even though I do periodically. So I just did. So there you go. So at any rate, also if you're looking for a new church and you come in here one week and uh, and I don't get as far through the text as I intended to do, which is not uncommon, um, you go away thinking perhaps on whatever the particular teaching was in the text that you somehow aren't comfortable with it, you don't agree with it, and so you make your decision at that point, well, that's it, I'm done with that church. Whereas if you had come the following week to hear the rest of what was a contiguous thought or message, uh, it might have made perfect sense to you. So all that is just in the, the category of for what it's worth and to help you again to determine where it is that the Lord really wants you to be. This morning we are still in the book of Mark, and uh, we're picking up in chapter 6, beginning in verse 35. Again, my initial comments are going to be introductory to recap a little bit of what we went over last week already. So where we left off was that Jesus and the 12 disciples were out to escape the crowds in order to gain some time, some personal time, to recruit and refresh after what must have been a very demanding nonstop mission. They had just come back from the mission that Jesus had sent them out on to spread the good news of the Savior of mankind. And the good news of the Savior of mankind that they were spreading, first and foremost, was the fact that God came the first time, Jesus, Emmanuel, with the whole Christmas season was just about his advent and all of that, was to come primarily, first and foremost, to deal with the issue, the singular issue, the all-important issue of man's sinfulness. And so now Jesus, noticing the toll that their mission had taken on them, he tells them to get in the boat, and we're going to all get in there together, and we're going to go across the sea here to escape these crowds to the other side of the lake, only to find that when they get to the other side of the lake, the thronging crowds beat them there, and so when they get out of the boats, there they are, they get onto the shore, and they realize they have a big greeting party on their arrival. That was neither something that they were counting on, nor was it something that they were desiring. And in last week's text, 
Jesus reinforces the legitimacy of the principle that setting boundaries when it comes to dealing with people and the needs and trying to be maybe even just a good friend, that when it comes to people, setting boundaries and being able to say no is not only necessary, it's godly. And I say it that way because Jesus was the one who demonstrated that very principle in his own life repeatedly. And again, I gave numerous examples of that in last week's message. Upon entering the rest of the pericope this morning, I want to note by way of recap that Jesus, again, he looks out and he sees now thousands who had gathered. And I believe, this is just pastoral speculation, so take it or leave it, but I believe that Jesus must have been a bit frustrated. Remember, the reason they were getting away was to be by themselves to refresh. He went there to get away from the crowds. But understanding that, Mark tells us in verse 34 of Mark 6, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, the sheep metaphor is used frequently in the Bible because the cultures of the day were familiar with sheep, which made the comparison brief in words, but very long on meaning with using just a few words. Sheep need close oversight, among other things, at least compared to numerous barnyard animals, and they need relatively tender care. And sheep need a knowledgeable, capable shepherd for them to have a reasonable, healthy, contented life as sheep. If we go back into the Old Testament, even as far back as the book of Numbers, we find Moses, and Moses realizes that his time on earth is quickly coming to an end, and so he petitions the Lord with a dying request. This is what we read in Numbers chapter 27, beginning in verse 16. Moses says, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in. This is referring now to God preparing to take his people into the land of covenant, into the promised land. Bring us someone, Lord. Appoint a man who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Now, I know that it is popularly taught, I myself am guilty, that sheep are particularly or especially stupid as far as animals go. That's not exactly the case. And by the way, anything that I say about sheep this morning does not come from personal experience. Okay? Growing up in suburban Chicago, didn't have a lot of experience with barnyard animals of any stripe. So I'm going by the experts And sheep are not particularly stupid. In fact, and I found this rather amusing, there was a flock in Yorkshire, England, that figured out how to get across a cattle grate. Now, if you've never seen one of these, I've run into these when I'm out in the boonies and you see a farm or whatever, and it's often right across a roadway where they don't want the cattle crossing to, uh, because everywhere else it's uh, penned in or what have you. And with their spindly little legs, of course, if they try to cross, they just drop right in between the grate, and it's quite a deterrent. But there's this flock in England that figured out how to traverse a cattle grate. And, I mean, I'm picturing this. And it kind of cracks me up 
because somewhere along the line, one of the sheep, I don't know if he was experimenting or what, but laid down on his side and realized that if he did that and then rolled over, he could roll over and defeat the cattle grate. Okay? So, I mean, I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty clever. So we mustn't continue the stereotype that sheep are stupid. Wow. You guys are on top of it. That was good. Sheep, I also understand, can actually learn their names. So they're absolutely, uh, actually uh, quite a few steps above cats. Um, they, oh, yeah, you had to get that in, didn't you? Sorry. They can recognize faces, I'm told, and they can recognize facial expressions conveying emotion. But they are instinctively herd animals, which means that if one of their sheep buddies is in front of them and it catches their attention, they'll fall right in step and they'll get behind and they'll just go wherever their buddy in front of them is going. So they are great followers, which, of course, can be to their detriment. They have no discernment. They have no common sense. All they have is instinct, which doesn't always serve them well. Which means without someone trustworthy to follow, they will wander aimlessly, oblivious to danger and anything else that they might encounter in their surroundings. So Jesus sees the multitude as people without trustworthy Godly leadership with no discernment, with no common sense, inclined to follow whoever the predominant voice is that they can hear. You think about that for just a split second and you realize what a contemporary reality that is today. Well, God answers Moses' dying request. We continue reading in 20, Numbers 27, 18. The Lord says to Moses, well, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit. Lay your hand on him and have him stand before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation and commission him in their sight. You shall put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey, or we may legitimately say may follow him. So in spite of fatigue, in spite of hunger, Jesus sees the crowds as desperate. And knowing their deepest need and having compassion on them, the text tells us that he began to teach them many things. Now, how does someone, anyone forsake harmful patterns? When you think about, again, this is, this is still kind of recap from last week, and I talked about in the crowd of the thousands, imagine the particular emotional needs, not just the physical needs, but the emotional and the psychological and the theological needs of, of the varying populations of people that were out there. How does someone forsake harmful patterns? How does anybody Managed to conquer cycles of failure, chronic behaviors that only continue to heap up sorrow and trouble? How does anyone exchange their old life-draining habits for life-giving ones? Well, Paul gives us some good advice in his letter to the believers at Rome in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, meaning the thinking and the patterns of the world and the culture and all of that. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, don't follow the lead of the godless, for they too are sheep without a shepherd. And it's the classic illustration of the blind following the blind. 
And instead of following the blind, follow the lead of the godly, who are defined as those who know and follow the good shepherd. And how do we do that again? By being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, what does it mean to renew something? I think we all know what that means pretty well. You ever restored anything physically? You ever restored a car? You ever restored your house or part of it? You ever restored a, a piece of furniture or something you got at a garage sale or what have you? I renewed my first car when I was 15 years old. It needed to be renewed. My grandfather picked it up from a friend from a junkyard. And uh, I was 15. I didn't have my driver's license yet. So, you know, I had nothing but time on my hands and the little bit of money I got from working at mobile gas station. And so uh, I was in the process of renewing my car, and it had a lot of renewing to be done because it, it was a 10-year-old vehicle. Um, it had rusted out on the fenders, which was kind of classic for that year of that vehicle where the water pools up in the drains, you know, get plugged. And so I took 10 snips, and I, I dutifully, not knowing a clue really what I was doing at all, it's just like, well, what do you got to lose? So I took 10 snips, and I cut out, you know, all the, the cancerous, rust-looking material on the fenders, and I thought, okay, now what do I do? And I took some screen from an old window, and I took Bondo. Men, we know what Bondo is. If you don't, raise your hand anyway. We don't want to take away your man card. Okay. It's a sticky stuff that hardens, and then you can sand it and everything else. Anyway, I put cut screen out to what like would kind of look like the fender maybe did, sort of, and then stick it behind it for a, a little platform, and then took my Bondo and put Bondo all over it, and then shaped it with a grinder and all that good stuff, all part of the process of renewal. Well, then there was the 10-year-old engine that had 10-year-old gunk in the engine, for which I used gunk. Yes, come on. Boy, there was a men's event here too yesterday. Man, that he lays out. There really is a, a chemical called gunk that is made for degreasing your engines and all that good stuff. Sorry, you know, no extra charge for any of this stuff. Okay, and then of course now I've got all that rough work kind of done and did the best I could do on it, and now I had to renew the paint so that it looked teenage cool. Okay, I even renewed its name. I did. It was a 1960 Dodge Comet. Oh, yeah, baby. Huh? If ever there was a collector hot street rod, that is not it. Okay? The fins are cool. At least they were in the 60s. Uh, but my 144 cubic inch flathead engine was not exactly uh, street worthy. Uh, but that's okay. This was my first car, so it was glorious. So in the process of my renewing it, when I was all done, I named it the Yellow Jacket. Why? Because I had painted it, not with spray cans, I had painted it a bright, bright, bright lemon yellow. Oh, wait, it gets better. And then I bought from a group called Warshawski's or Eli Whitney, E.J. Whitney in Chicago, who has everything. I bought a spray-on fake vinyl top, including seams that you put on, and then spray this textured paint over it. And I did that. That was flat black on this bright yellow car, a fake flat black hood scoop, black pinstriping, also hand done, so you know how, look, how great that looked. And then right on the front fender there, over in that little clear area, I put in real cool letters, the yellow jacket. Oh, yeah, baby. And then, of course, I had to, I don't know what they call it these days, I rake the back end. You put these 
you know, extenders that lift the back end up, and I put a thrush glass pack on it. Not glass packs. You know, this was no dual exhaust on my 144 cubic inch flathead six. In my first nine months of driving, I was pulled over nine times by the police. Never got a ticket for anything. It just looked like this race car. <laughs> so I know the drill. I'd get out. In those days, you were supposed to get out of your car and, I'd, you know, leave the car running because they wanted to check the pipes and open the trunk and all that. And they'd walk around and they'd go, okay, you have a nice day. And they'd let you go. Nine times. I used to pull over. when If ever I would see a cop, I'd just pull over and get ready. Honest to goodness truth. Honest to goodness truth. One cop, we were talking a little bit about it, and he wanted to know, you know, <laughs> what I was running. Yeah, well, uh, i got to go. You know, I'm not telling him a 144 cubic inch engine. Are you kidding me? I couldn't hit 60 downhill with a good wind behind me. Anyway, where were we? We're talking about being renewed. <laughs> Should have seen my second car. Oh, baby. I, I don't. I wish I had pictures. It was a yacht. It was like 40 feet long. It was a Dodge Matador. Again, more fins. I painted it plum crazy, which was Dodge's stock purple. Anyway, sorry. Okay, focus here. We're on renewal of the yellow jacket. So Jesus, yes, Jesus, <laughs> sees the multitudes hopelessly lost, just as we are in here right now. Grabbing onto anything and anyone that hope might bring some kind of goodness into their lives. And what they need is renewing. They need wholesale change, transformation, in the words of the Apostle Paul. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus began to teach them. Remember what we've already covered in, in this gospel in particular and what you already know about Jesus. He could snap a finger and make an ache go away. He could command blindness to be gone. When he spoke to paralysis, he ordered it to take a hike, and it took a hike. But changing the whole outlook and the destiny of one's life, both now and forever, takes renewing the mind. It meant trashing all the bad ideas. It meant jettisoning all the de desperate philosophies, the empty promises, and the counterfeit beliefs with which they had been stumbling through life and replacing it with true truth. And here is truth incarnate standing in front of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things, the text says. So don't think that this was a ten-minute soundbite with an altar call. This took some time. In fact, it went on throughout the day and it went into the evening. And now in our text, we know that it's past dinner time. But as I said last week, Jesus is not oblivious to his own humanity and thus his own human needs. And he is certainly not oblivious to ours. But first and foremost, the multitudes who ran after the boys in the boat, perceiving that they had something that could make their lives better, what they needed was the bread of life before they needed bread for their bellies. Jesus saw their ultimate need 
which were words of life. As a matter of human frailty, people get hungry. But that is not their beginning need that trumps all other needs. If one dies, think about this carefully and logically. If one dies of hunger without words of life, they die. If one dies of hunger with words of life, they live. And they live eternally. Now, do not misunderstand what I am saying. And don't hear what I just said out of context between last week and again now this week. Jesus is not oblivious to his own humanity and his own human needs, and he is certainly not oblivious to ours. We know this because, but look, on another day, to another crowd, Jesus says in John chapter 626, it's recorded, Truly I say to you, you seek me because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for food which perishes but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Just a few verses later in the same gospel, same chapter, Jesus says to them, I'm the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And in John chapter 11, the context is Jesus with Mary and Martha, and their brother had just died, and Jesus was there to raise them from the dead. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And so we see Jesus always focused on first things first. I came to seek, he said. I came to seek and to save those who are lost, Luke 19. But he is not oblivious to our daily human needs. Picking up in Mark 6, verse 35. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and it's already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. That is an emphatic you in the original manuscripts. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? Now, to put that in perspective, 200 denarii would have been roughly the wage for eight months of your typical worker in the day. We're not talking about pocket change. But remember, standing on the beach is the bread of life who we read in the Gospel of John comes down out of heaven, feeding the souls of the masses food by which they will never hunger. And knowing full well what their genuine human need is, tells the twelve to feed the thousands of people who just had their souls fed. Now it's time to take care of a very important but not emergent need, namely the feeding of their grumbly tummies. Verse 38. And he said to them, that is to the disciples, so, so how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, uh, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. 
they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, which will become significant when we get to the last uh, verse of this pericope, which we won't do today. And he took the five loaves, which were five loaves of uh, flat bread, small little things, and the two fish. And looking up toward heaven, Jesus blessed the food and broke the loaves. And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before all the people that were out there. And he divided up the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. Sometimes little details in a story tend to just jump out at me. And those little details don't seem all that important, and sometimes they're not, and I wonder why they're there except but to make me smile as this one did. Inclusion of this detail just seems to punctuate the very wondrous nature of our incredible God. Mark could have omitted what is one word, just the last word, In this verse, it's two words in our translations. It is the verse, and they all ate and were satisfied. Knowing that Jesus had created a meal for thousands of people, ex nihilo. Ex nihilo means out of nothing, right? You know the law of thermodynamics? that. Matter can neither be created nor destroyed. That's absolutely true in the world that we're familiar with, but not with the creator of the universe. He created a meal for 5,000, we'll find out next week or the week after, rather. And you know what? That's kind of a big enough miracle for me. But the Spirit isn't satisfied with our only knowing that. When Jesus acted out of compassion, knowing they were hungry, he didn't simply give them an amuse bouche. Okay, I only put this up because I put this up this past week, beginning of the week. This was, and I put up there, this was the amuse bouche that I served to my lovely bride. What is an amuse bouche? And it was interesting to hear people's smart aleck comments that replied to the silly little food picture. Anyway, an amuse bouche, when you're in a nice restaurant, okay, and it's usually a nice, meaning expensive restaurant too, they will oftentimes come out with what is called an amuse-bouche. And it's something that you didn't order. This is not an appetizer. This is something that usually the chef of the day has concocted and created himself, and he just kind of wants to show it off. And so they come out, and they give you what is literally a one- or two-bite little sample of the chef's great creation of the day. And that's what, and that's what I did. I made this for Barb. It was meant to be two bites, a nice sea scallop, a little balsamic vinegar. I give it a C minus for presentation, but an A for taste. But see, Jesus didn't just give them something to kind of quell their, their hunger. He didn't give them an appetizer. That one little word included tells us that they were stuffed. They didn't just eat to get rid of the hunger pain. They were stuffed. God's compassion, you see, is not merely perfunctory. It is bountiful. The masses now have been fed to the full from five small pieces of flatbread, as I've said, and two fish. And Jesus tells the twelve now that everybody's fed and they're full to pick up the pieces, and they collect far more than they ever began with. Mathematics in God's kingdom of blessing 
cannot be told logically. One year when Barbara and I and the kids were in seminary, I just got done doing our taxes, which were a joke. And I decided, and I don't know why, maybe the Lord did it to use as an illustration later on, all these years later, I do include it in my book, The Proper Pursuit of Prosperity. Um, I decided I wanted to compare our outgo that year to our income. Because I just, I knew how faithful God had been in providing for us truly miraculously all the way through seminary. And in this particular year, I just thought, huh, this would be interesting to see. See, Barbara and I have always been committed to tithing. That means giving a 10% of our income, of our gross income. From the day we became believers and very shortly thereafter realized the principles in Scripture that would honor God in the way he would honor us in them. And so that's why I did this little exercise. And when I got done, I was surprised when our outgo was about $8,000 more than our income, and yet we were debt-free. That's called divine mathematics. Now, if you heard this kind of a thing coming from the GAO, the Government Accountability Organization or office, I'd be suspicious. But this was from the hand of God. Malachi chapter 3, the last book of the Old Testament, prophet Malachi writes, saying, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. This is God speaking, by the way. So that there may be food in my house and test me now in this. It's the only place in Scripture that I can find ever where God says, Now you put me to the test and see. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Four centuries later, Jesus says something that's even a little more comprehensive in Matthew chapter 6.33, my life verse, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added unto you. That in a nutshell, is what I call the proper pursuit of prosperity. It is undergirded many ways throughout the Scriptures in both the Old and New Testaments. Delight yourself in the Lord, King David writes in Psalm 37, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Oh, the despicable prosperity preachers out there that are, are hawking you know, this, this vending machine kind of God, they love this verse, but they only give part of this verse. Oh, you read that? He will give you the desires of your heart. There's nothing that God doesn't want you to have, so just make your wishes and your requests, and God will fulfill it. You know, it's like talking to Pedro. You know, vote for me, and all your wildest dreams will come true. That's really obscure there. Napoleon Dynamite. Never mind. Okay. But the passage, you see, comes conditionally. It says, delight yourself in the Lord. Which means what? Which means His delights are going to be your delights. And if you do that, then obviously God will do and give you the desires of your heart because they're His desires. But there's more to the verse even than that. The rest of it says, and commit your way, not to yourself, but to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. The disciples started out with much less than what they ended up with. 
Well, Mark moves us along then on to another scene with Jesus and the disciples. In verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away after bidding them farewell. He left for the mountain to pray. Now the last time, remember, that they got into a boat, it was to get away from the crowds. And yet the crowds beat them to the other side. And they were there waiting for them. This time, Jesus says, okay, look, you guys get into the boat. And you guys take off. And I'm going to hang back here. And I am personally going to dismiss the crowds. The text doesn't say so. So again, dismiss it if you like. But I believe it was to ensure that the same thing didn't happen again. You guys need a break. Shove off, get going, and I'll make sure that everybody leaves here and they don't follow. So the disciples are headed safely back across the water. And what does Jesus do? He heads off alone. For some what? For some personal me time. For some downtimes. For some R&R to be with the Father. Verse 47. Now when it was evening, The boat was in the middle of the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. Seeing them from straining at the oars, for the wind was great against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and they were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. It had not dawned on me until this week while preparing this message that I have overlooked all these years of reading this passage, another miracle. In all my times through this, I never saw it until this week. I wonder if anybody else noticed it. Jesus dismisses the disciples, giving them a head start. Jesus now hangs around to see that the crowd of 5,000 dismiss in an orderly fashion, as well as making sure, again, I believe, that they don't try to follow the disciples the way they had when they were coming over to this place the first time around. And then Jesus went to the mountain to pray. We have to agree that there was a considerable time period between the disciples shoving off and Jesus finishing with his time praying. And we're told in the text that it was evening. So time has passed and it was dark. And here's this little boat. And it is a little boat. Going back to one of the very first messages, I think I'm pretty sure I put up a picture of what a little fisherman's boat would look like back then. This was not much bigger than a, uh, you know, like a 16 foot dinghy, I don't believe. So this is a little boat. It is far out. The text says it's in the midst of, or out in the middle. It could have been as far, or at least as far as a half a mile out in the middle of the sea. And it's nighttime. And yet, Jesus 
sees them in verse 48. Jesus sees them straining at the oars. That's not normal. That's not natural. That's a miracle. And again, I just go, wow. took me this many years to catch that. Two chapters earlier, the disciples and Jesus are all out on the sea in their little boat. You remember going back to chapters 1 and 2. And a storm hits rather suddenly and it's so fierce that these seasoned fishermen are fearing for their lives. And where's Jesus? He's under the hold, which again, this was not something you could walk in. It was like a little deck shelter that came out maybe, I don't know, three or four feet. And he had his head stuck under there and he was sawing logs. And the water is being tossed about by the wind and it's breaking over the boat, meaning Jesus is getting wet and he's still snoring. Neither the violent raging winds nor even the drenching cold water of the seas were enough to rouse the one who controls the very elements of nature. But the panic of the crew compelled them to wake him, certain that they were going to perish. And Jesus wiping, oh boy, what a crazy dream that was. Wipes the sleep from his eyes. He tells the wind to give it a rest so that they could get some rest. And the seas, having no choice, regained their composure for the master who created them demanded it and it obeyed. This time, we are told, it is the fourth watch of the night, according to verse 48, which puts it at 3 to 6 a.m. in the morning. And then the mysterious words we read are this. Jesus came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. He... He intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and they were terrified. Matthew tells us that they all cried out. John tells us that they all cried out. But none of them say what they cried out. I want to know what they cried out. Just out of curiosity. But then again, I remember that some of them were fishermen. Some of them were tax collectors. None of them were fully sanctified yet. So there's good reason, I suppose, the Holy Spirit didn't have anyone record exactly what they cried out. Holy Nikes! But what puzzled me is that phrase that Jesus, remember Emmanuel, God with us, intended to pass by them. That's a curious thing to say. I don't know, I picture Jesus kind of out there, you know. You know, pay no attention to the man walking on the water. Just, I mean, what in the world is up with that? Well, what might explain the phrase, and I only say what might explain it, is the meaning of to pass by that we get from previous uses in the inspired, infallible, and authoritative word of God. So again, applying that principle of allowing the Scripture to interpret Scripture, Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, we read about the situation where Moses says to the Lord, I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. And God says to him, Moses, nobody can see the face of God and live. 
but here's what I'm going to do. And he takes Moses and he sticks him in what's called the cleft of a rock between two big boulders. He sticks him right in his wedge. And he says, the glory of the Lord of my glory will pass by you. My glory will pass by you. And once it's by, you will turn and look and you will see me from behind. The point there when Jehovah passed by was not to hide himself. The point was just the opposite. It was to reveal himself to Moses. Another little example in 1 Kings chapter 19. We have the prophet Elijah who's been having a really bad time with the wicked Jezebel, to put it mildly. And so Jezebel's fearing for his life and he's hiding in a cave. And God finds Elijah and he tells him, man up, get out of the cave. I'm adding a little bit here, Midrashic commentary. And stand by and watch as God passed by. And he does so, and what he observes is the might of the Lord basically destroying a mountain. God is not hiding himself from Elijah. He is, in fact, revealing himself to Elijah in passing by. One more from the New Testament, John chapter 6, verse 31. It was when Jesus passed by that John proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was not to hide himself, but to reveal himself. So rather than a sense that Jesus was trying to avoid them, he was in fact revealing himself to them, which gains even more traction when you consider what Jesus says to them when they get done screaming like they just wakened up with a spider on their faces. In verse 50, Immediately, Jesus spoke with them and said, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Why does that give it any traction? Because what is translated in the modern versions of the Bible of Jesus saying, It is I in the original language is ego eimi, which translated literally word for word means it is I am. And I am is the distinctive, unique name of Jehovah. When, again, Moses is asking the Lord's appearance in the burning bush, who shall I say is sending me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. The name Jehovah was used to reveal himself to Moses in that bush. So Jesus steps into the boat. What happens? The wind stops. Without Jesus saying anything this time, seems the wind learns its lesson the first time around, who Jesus was, even when as yet the disciples were still pretty thick. Verse 52, For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves because their heart was hardened. I'm glad we're out of time because (laughs) if you've ever done a study on this whole idea of the hardening of man's heart throughout the scriptures, it generates more questions than it answers. Some of it, to be sure, at times is brought on by disbelief. but Some of it is brought on by God's initiative concerning his purposes in the world and the life or the lives 
of persons. What I do know is that no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit first draws him. We read that in John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. In uh, just a few verses later, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so Jesus is always fixed on his mission in coming. And he is fixed on imparting that mission to those who follow in his ways and believe him. And so we too must stay fixed and focused on what is our first and formal priority and what is underneath that. Today in this place, there are many of you who love the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the Spirit of God within you. If you were to die the moment you leave this building today or you die right now, you know you would spend eternity in the presence of God. There are others who are kind of on a pilgrimage and you yourself are are really kind of open and you're desiring this, but you're not even sure yourself. Whether you are or you aren't, God's beckoning to you today to make it firm. And how do you do that? You just say, I do to God. Yes, Lord, I hear you. I want to be yours forever and ever. And those who are here for other reasons, maybe under duress, maybe to make somebody happy, to get them off your back for several months now, or what have you, the Spirit of God has given me this message to give today so that your ears would hear and that your heart might be softened to what is the true truth of the Good Shepherd who desires you to be in His presence for eternity. Would you give your life to Him today? Let me have everybody stand. I'm going to close our time in prayer, contrary to what I said to Elder Jim. (laughs) Father in Heaven, You know, you know every one of us in here this morning. You know our spiritual destiny. You know our spiritual hypocrisy. You know our spiritual sensitivities and loves for you. There's nothing hidden from your eyes, oh God. Tear the sheaths away from hardened souls, Father. For many years of who knows what. But give the gift of faith to receive the bread of life today. And to those, Lord, who've been on this path and you've been calling them and the Spirit has been beckoning them, and they're on again, off again one day, and they themselves right now are wondering themselves, cause them to know today with certainty their eternity in your glorious heaven. Thank you for loving us where we all are. Thank you for wanting us to come. May we hear, may we obey, may we be a blessing to you. In your great name we pray. Amen.